welcome to Gutsy Matters Podcast, brought to you by storednaturally.com. I'm Wendy Allen. And I'm Helen Reynolds. Gutsy Matters Podcast is for independent thinkers who aren't afraid to stand out from the crowd. Our conversations are with people who, like us, are willing to create something they believe in, something that helps us all to live more sustainably, more consciously and with greater connection. We're delighted you're joining us to discover, uncover and create opportunities and perspectives about health, wealth and sustainable living. Dr Eliza Whiteside is an Associate Professor in Biomedical Sciences, Health Sciences Discipline Lead and the Molecular Biomarkers Research Group Leader at the University of Southern Queensland. For the past 20 years, Eliza has held lecturing and research appointments at Queensland University of Technology, University of Sydney and University of Bedfordshire in the UK. She obtained her PhD in cancer research from the Centre of Molecular Biotechnology at QUT in 2001. As a breast cancer survivor herself, Eliza is passionate about undertaking research that actually makes a difference to our lives, as well as advocating for equal opportunity to all research and academia through her role on, on the USQ HES Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Eliza's molecular biology-based research investigates whether compounds derived from natural products such as foods, fungi and plants can prevent cancerous changes in the body and her quality of life research explores how lifestyle factors such as psychosocial health and exercise can influence recovery from cancer treatment. We are really looking forward to hearing more about why you are so passionate about improving lives through research, education and community engagement. So welcome to the Gutsy Matters podcast, Eliza. Oh, thank you very much and it's my um, my absolute pleasure. So we will get started because we... We are really interested in the use of natural products in the molecular biology-based research. So can you tell us how you got started in this line of research and, and what you're focusing on at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I guess, you know, um, pre for me, pre-cancer, so going back a, a couple of decades, um, my PhD was uh, looking at what are pathways, so that's changes in our genes and how our genes are expressed, um, how that changes when a cancer um, starts to form. So a cancer in the body forms, um, starts by mutations in the DNA, um, and then those mutations keep accumulating um, and then those changes then lead to, to what we, the, the symptoms and, and signs of a cancer. So I was interested in molecules. When I went through cancer myself, I saw it with a whole different lens. And I guess it was talking to other people who uh, were going through the same experience. And the questions that they were asking was not about molecules, although of course that, that all plays plays a role, but it was what can we do? How can I help my own situation? How can I, you know, try and improve my chances of not just surviving this, but surviving it well and living after the cancer treatment. So that was always in in my mind when I, you know, got through my own uh, treatment and had the opportunity to come back to research. I thought, well, you know, research funding often comes from taxpayers. And if it's taxpayers, if it's, it's those, the public 
they want this kind of research to be happening. They want to know how they can, you know, improve their own prognosis. How can they, how, what can they do to help themselves? And so I guess that's what inspired me to go down this path. And so, of course, you know, it's not just me. There's, well, you know, research in this area um, happening globally. But I guess what is what was lacking anyway when, you know, we're going back um, again about 15 years when, when I started to, to be interested in this was that really good evidence basis for these kind of um, interventions. So for any kind of uh, approach to be taken up in mainstream, it needs to go through a rigorous process of you know, accumulating evidence to show that something is actually going to be of benefit and, of, and certainly not of harm. So I guess that's why um, I went down this path. Still, of course, interested in very much in looking at, at molecules, but also trying to, um, I guess, look at, at, at things that people can do themselves. So those kind of, um, I guess, you know, self-care uh, that, you know, will empower somebody who perhaps is going through cancer or, you know, is at a higher risk because of, you know, a genetic history, a family history of cancer or that they've gone through it before. So, so yeah. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Because a diagnosis can be so disempowering. You know, we, Absolutely. we want to be able to take back some sense of, um, ability to handle the situation, don't we? A little bit of control, yeah, just a little bit, and it and it is very even for for me, it was was very disempowering. I just felt like I was rolling with it at the start, and it wasn't until you know a few months into it that I actually felt that okay, no, this is me. I have to make decisions not based on statistics. I have to look at me, my my life. You know my, you know my age, my, you know family situation, what I wanted to do, and make decisions based on that. So, um, so yeah, so that's and that's what I felt came from not from everyone. Again, everyone is very different, um, but from a lot of the, um, the others, um, you know, other people going through the clinical trials I was involved in, uh, and just speaking to to other people through other work, um, that had been affected by cancer or had a family member. Um, so there was that that feeling of what can I do? And so I do feel that we need to have a really good evidence base to know what can be beneficial and, you know, what might just be, I don't know, snake oil, I guess, is, is what's often used. But, um, but yeah, just, just developing that, that, that scientific basis um, for it. So, hmm. so what are some of the natural products you're using in your research at the moment or, or in the past and what results can you share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So our first project was looking at curcumin, which is from the spice turmeric. And so it has been used in, in many different applications throughout history. Um, however, one of the issues with curcumin is that it doesn't stay around in the body. It has a low bioavailability. So, so that's been the issue with it. So a collaborator that we had who had actually developed uh, a nanoparticle um, that was uh, encapsulated, so encapsulated the curcumin and enabled it to actually last longer within the body. And so we looked at that in a model of uh, rats, basically. They were obese rats and we looked at whether the addition of curcumin in its normal form or, um, and this was oral curcumin, so we were looking at the translatability to somebody you know, taking curcumin, as well as the uh, the nanoparticle um, 
formulation, whether that could influence what was going on within uh, the colon of those rats and whether we could see a change. We know that a high-fat and high-carbohydrate diet that can lead to um, obesity um, can increase all of those cancer pathways within, within the colon, so that's within the bowel. And so we wanted to see whether curcumin could actually reverse that or prevent that happening. And so we got some really interesting results there. And so that in, in spite of, and at that stage, I'm not a big fan of doing animal studies. It is something that is an aspect of, of medical research. But for me, um, myself, I am more interested in using other models within my research. So we actually moved our project away from uh, the animal model and used cell lines and uh, specifically cell lines that uh, have come from um, a, a human um, who has had a cancer. So because cancers, by virtue of what they are, they essentially those cells will live forever for the most part. And so we can take those cells and we can grow them in the laboratory. And so we can use those as a model to see whether different um, phytochemicals uh, or other additives can actually have an effect on cancer processes. So um, at the same time, we also uh, were very fortunate enough to be um, funded by uh, the Brazel Family Foundation. And uh, and so with this early data showing that, that curcumin could have an influence uh, in human cancer and, and in uh, preventing sort of processes that can lead to um, cancer development, we then took that to a model of the skin um, because, again, you know, our research was being funded by farmers. We looked at, well, what are the issues that affect the farming community? And so skin cancer um, is at much higher rates um, within the farming community. And so we wanted to see whether curcumin um, could actually have uh, an effect in preventing the damage that the UV from the sun can actually do within the skin, leading to an increase in skin cancer. So that project is looking at both curcumin at very low dose, because we already know that it has all these marvellous properties, and also a curcumin that doesn't have the yellow colour. So thinking about turmeric, it's got mm. that very yellow colour. We don't all want to look like Donald Trump, so, um, <laughs> so we also <laughs> we also have a, a modified version of curcumin. Well, some people might, so you know, we, we have that yellow form is, is available. But no, so we're we're looking at a um, at a, a version that doesn't have that that yellow um, colour, and so actually seeing if that can prevent some of the DNA damage. So the early results, and so this is one of my fabulous PhD students, Amanda Diekman, and um, so her early results is uh, showing at, at that um, molecular level that the, the curcumin does have an influence on those DNA damage pathways. And so those DNA damage pathways um, are what lead to, um, and, and that pathway not working, um, lead to mutations caused by uh, UV um, in the DNA, which can lead to those mutations and, and therefore cancers. So, so that's one project. Um, and then the other project, uh, again, it came out of my work with uh, National Breast Cancer Foundation. I also went to a lot of functions with, with prostate cancer. And in fact, most of my, my research has been more around prostate cancer. And, um, and so in that particular group, there is um, 
because prostate cancer is like one of the highest diagnosed cancers in males. But what we now know is that you know the majority of early prostate cancers are not going to to be fatal. So it's that males will you know die with prostate cancer as opposed to from prostate cancer. So some of the clinical um, advice is often just watch and wait not to do anything with those early cancers because they'll be very slow growing and will never sort of cause any anything that's going to lead to issues, physiological issues or, or again lead to fatality. However, what we found was that speaking to men with prostate cancer and, and their, their partners was that they again felt like, well, what do I do? Do I just let it take its course? Like I feel like I want to do something to help myself for my cancer, not to, not to come back or or not to, um, you know, change that slow growing aspect of it. So that's where knowing that in the research literature, um, others had been doing some research around the use of a chemical called, uh, and when I say chemical, phytochemical, so they're naturally occurring chemicals within foods or plants, and so um, capsaicin is from the chili. And so capsaicin is what gives that that heat response when we eat chili. But um, and some people might be familiar with the use of capsicum sprays. So um, you know they can be used to obviously cause harm in if sprayed in one's eyes. But um, they can also be used to spray on injuries to um, to again help that that pain um, feeling. So um, so we we knew that. Capsaicin had been used in other studies and could kill prostate cancer cells, um, so in the laboratory. So we wanted to see whether, well, could capsaicin actually prevent um, an early prostate cancer from actually becoming, you know, making those mutations that can happen that make the cancer get worse? Can capsaicin prevent those molecular changes? So we found some, so again, going back to our model using the rat model and found um, some interesting evidence to then go into our model looking at prostate cancer cells um, and also um, cells from from benign prostatic hyperplasia or, or non-cancer but also um, something that can affect the prostate gland. So cells from, from humans that we could grow in the lab and adding capsaicin and we could show that Yes, most definitely, um, capsaicin, even in those early stages, could prevent some of those cancerous changes from, from taking place. So proliferation is where a cancer, a cell goes from one to two to four to eight and so on and so forth. That's one of the hallmarks of cancer. So um, capsaicin could um, basically prevent them from, from proliferating. And uh, you know, a whole bunch of other uh, cancer um, processes were also impeded by um, the capsaicin. So that was another project and at the moment because we don't have funding, unfortunately for medical research, unless you were doing something COVID related, it was very difficult to get, um, to get funding in the past year for, um, for other projects. But um, that was some, some early data and, and we, we do hope we'll keep applying for funding for that and hopefully we can get back onto that because for us we feel that you know translating that um, for somebody who is in that situation, you know, could it be that they could just take, they could take a capsaicin supplement and, you know, or, you know, increase the amount of chili in their diet, I guess, and could that actually um, reduce their chances of their cancer coming back or if it does grow faster or 
uh, or if it's going to become more aggressive, perhaps ameliorate that or, or reduce that in some way. So, but again, it's empowering the, the cancer patient, if you will, or that person affected by cancer to do something for themselves. Again, we need a much stronger evidence base to be able to give that advice. So, yeah, so that was the other one. The third project that we um, fortunately do have some funding uh, for, and that came in a year ago, and that's for looking at some traditional bush medicine. So this is a project that um, is in collaboration with um, Aboriginal medical services and also um, Aboriginal nursing researchers at USQ and uh, led by um, Dr. Raylene Ward. And so this is looking at some traditional bush medicines that have been used by various Indigenous groups in uh, very remote. So our project extends out to Kanamala um, and then uh, north to uh, Gladstone and then, of course, in Toowoomba as well. And so this is looking at um, some of those bush medicines that have been used to treat wounds or just even skin conditions. And so we are looking at those in a model of a chronic wound. Uh, so wounds are uh, an issue that affect um, not only uh, the First Nations Australian community, but of course, you know, globally, um, chronic wounds are an issue for, for everyone. Um, but in yeah, in rural and remote, um, of course, there are the issues of getting um, healthcare, um, the cost of these treatments, and and in and when we look at and when we, we talk to our colleagues in these Aboriginal medical services, there's other barriers for our First Nations Australians and, and often that's simply that they do not want to leave if the, the, the wound is so bad um, that can't be treated within the local AMS, then that person has to travel to, you know, maybe Toowoomba or even worse into Brisbane. And they just don't want to leave their family and they don't want to go too much of the unknown. So what this project is about is looking at some of those traditional bush medicines as well as some other uh, novel, um, less expensive wound treatments that can be used within the, the AMSs, within the Aboriginal Medical Services. And so the project also has wound specialists who are helping to, um, to improve the, the training and the understanding of wounds within um, these settings. So in combination with you know, our assay to understand better what's going on in a wound, looking at what traditional bush medicines can, you know, are useful treating specific wounds. So we're trying to sort of personalize it, if you will. So understand a little bit more about what's going on in the wound and then have that, that, that strong evidence about, okay, well, perhaps this, you know, may well be tree tree oil, for example, it may be eucalyptus oil, that perhaps in combination with a certain other bandage, that's going to be useful for a wound that, you know, has particular um, bacterial infection along with maybe that person may well also be suffering with, you know, type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular um, disease. We know that it's going to be very, um, very complex. So that's the, the third project. But you can see that there is a, a flavour of trying to work with the group that our research is trying to benefit. So whether it be Indigenous communities or whether it be the cancer, cancer and, and, and um, cancer family community, we're trying to do research that, that's actually going to be able to be embraced and by you know, the end user, if you will. Mm, there's definitely that line of empathy through your work. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you question was coming about what 
what types of bush medicines the, do you use? And you talked about the tea tree oil and eucalyptus oil. I know there's there's talk about the gumby gumby, yeah, um, and things like that. Are, are you doing anything with those sort of? You know, so just wondering what the variety of different bush medicines mm. that have been used because they have been used for for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. We have, we're staying away from that one. There's there's been some traditional bush medicines that uh, have been used without proper permissions, and so. Um, we're a little bit careful around some of them. And again, what we've been using uh, have been already, I guess, published. They're already out in the public domain. So we're, at the moment, that's what we're doing in the laboratories. But our next step is actually to run yarning circles. So using an Aboriginal form of, uh, you know, I guess, data collection, if you want to be that, but more a format of, uh, you know, like a focus group. So yarning sessions where we actually hope to understand um, more about the lo- those local communities. So, you know, going out to Kanamala and having yarning circles to find out, well, what things are used out here. Um, and it's not going to be one single thing. It's going to probably be a combination. And also what has been found previously by other researchers is that certain bush medicines are only useful at certain parts of the year um, because often the metabolites, so they're the chemicals that are produced by the plants where these bush medicines come from or sometimes it's actually the fungus that's living in the plant, they're only produced under certain conditions. So it may well be that it's in the wet season that this particular bush medicine will be useful. It might be the dry season, it might be you know, if this particular plant is grown next to another plant or, you know what I mean? There's all those kind of, uh, you know, nuances and that, that we're actually really, we're hoping to be able to um, to gather up some of that information. But again, all of this will be done with the, the agreement and, and um, we just have to be so careful because of, you know, IP and um, uh, we don't want to take any knowledge that's not you know, it's not ours. Um, and so, yeah, so Gumby Gumby is one that's just, I don't know, still a little bit controversial. So um, so we just thought we'll go with some of the other, Mountain Berry uh, is one of the, the other products that we're looking at, but it's already out in the public domain. Um, we can purchase product um, with, you know, all the permissions. We know that it, the, the research has been done, um, you know, with all the proper agreements in place. So, but yes, I agree that it would be so useful to look at some of those other components like Gumby Gumby, uh, and that, and again, you know, with Gumby Gumby, it, there's so much more to be done, you know, around, you know, what aspect of the plant is is the most useful. So, yeah, so that's where we're at. Mm, so interesting, and there's so many things that you hear about, and you really don't know whether it's true or whether it's hearsay, and I guess with the Indigenous community, there's a lot of information that's just been handed down through generations that's not written down yes. as well. So it's it's actually finding out that's what it. works and, and, and how, as you say, different times of the year is absolutely true. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, and again, it's that oral history. So so all, all of this, and it may well be that, you know, in certain areas, certain groups who don't want to share this and don't want to have this information put down in a written form. But, um, but again, that will be conversations that we have through our collaborators and, you know, in these, these different areas. So, yeah, but yeah, it is, it's so valuable. But, but again, oral histories, we, you know, um, and it will be just, you know, such a, an honour if, um, if we can be part of sharing some of this information more broadly. So is the work that you're doing with 
the Aboriginal medical services and Indigenous community. Is that part of the USQ Deadly Ways Indigenous Outreach Program that I know <laughs> you're involved in, or is that something yeah, different? No, well, well, it's not part of that, but that. Um, you know, the, the lead of that, uh, Yvonne O'Neill, she has just been fabulous. She introduces me to everyone. <laughs> so so when I, I do, so I'm you know, very active in that, um, in that program. And so what we're, the goal of Deadly Ways is to take, and it's not really based around getting uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids in, into uni. It's just about talking about options and showing them pathways of, you know, through education and knowledge, you know, there's, there's, you know, other things that you can, you can be doing. So, so for us, obviously we're more around the science side of things um, and the science outreach. So I think the last time um, we went out, we went to Kingaroy, Nanango, uh, Kanamala and Charleville and uh, myself and my colleague, uh, Leanne Dooley, who is a medical laboratory scientist. So she talks about jobs and, and I guess what kind of skills and knowledge you do in careers in working in pathology lab. And, uh, and so um, we went out with, uh, you know, microscopes and, you know, blood films and, um, you know, I had DNA extractions all ready to go. And we also had this activity where we made different kinds of slime, um, and which is also chemistry and, <laughs> and science. Um, and of course, you know, so so that was the the, the activity that was um, the most popular. We did that in oh gosh, so many schools. I think you know over ten schools anyway in ten days. But again, being in that community, it was just wonderful. So I would spend time with the kids during the day, um, and then in the evening. Yvonne would have organised for you know community members uh, in those towns to to all come to a um, you know to a, a meal and uh, and then it was the opportunity to chat further about our grants and so we already had Kanamala uh, Aboriginal uh, Medical Service already on board Kesh were already on board with the project through my other colleague Raylene but it was fabulous to be able to to meet and and to you know talk to all the other you know Aboriginal health workers and and nurses that were within that setting. So, so yeah, so I just, it's crossover, but it's, yeah, kind of a separate, it's a separate project. It's actually part of uh, Australia, an, an Australian um, government health uh, initiative aligned to the closing the gap. Um, and so, uh, but, but again, you know, everything I do, I try and make sure there's lots of crossovers because, um, you know, one thing most certainly does help with the other. And it's great that USQ has got a program to, to actually get out into the schools and into the communities and, and showcase science in schools because, yeah, oh, it I is. think it's if, just, yeah, if, if yeah. children can see it early and, and understand and, and be excited yeah. by it, there's, there's yeah, exactly. the future, aren't they? Yeah, and just knowing that making slime, that's science. Yes. <laughs> you know, so it's not all, um, you know, people in you know, safety glasses and lab coats, um, you know, science is all around us. Cooking is science. But um, but I guess the other aspect to that is, um, you know, all the wonderful other opportunities that are showcased by Deadly Ways. So, you know, jobs in radio, um, jobs in sport, you know, um, uh, Yvonne uh, also embeds, you know, has cultural awareness kind of thing, but like embedded throughout and just, I guess, for the kids to, to try and, I guess, get, you know, shine a light for them on, you know, being proud of, of where they come from and, um, and learning a little bit more about their own history. So it's just, it's beautiful to, to, to see and to be part of it. So, hmm. Sounds a fantastic program. So, let, can I double back a little bit to the Kirkman and Kapsi- 
caps. Uh, I can't say capsaicin. <laughs> capsaicin. Yep. Capsaicin. <laughs> well, some some say capsaicin. So it's one of those tomato, tomato, potato, potato. <laughs> but yeah, capsaicin, capsaicin. Oh, whatever, well, whatever you want to present. So you need it. <laughs> someone to make a jazz song out of it. Um, uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> so, how close are we to finding a natural product that could prevent cancerous changes in the body? Oh, look, that's a million-dollar question. I think, um, well, it really is. And and I guess, so, you know, the, the challenges are always the fact that, you know, research into, you know, drugs for cancer, are, you know, are with pharmaceutical companies and not to poo-hoo, you know, that industry at all because, you know, for me, I was a benefit of, you know, I was in a clinical trial for a new drug and I potentially wouldn't be here. My cancer was really aggressive and uh, the pharmaceutical company sponsored that particular clinical trial for this drug. I wouldn't have been able to afford it, to have had it. So drugs for cancer are generally one single thing. So they're one one component. Uh, and then they can be used as, as multiple multiple drugs um, as a treatment, but but each drug itself is is one usually one chemical. Whereas I guess with a lot of the natural product stuff, it's it's combinations. It's not just the one you know one thing. And with most successful drugs, they have one usually one one job. You know they they bind to one receptor. They do one thing in a cell. Whereas you know, for a lot of natural products, they have multiple uses. You look at, you know, um, curcumin, anti-inflammatory. It, um, you know, prevents proliferation of cancer cells. It can cause apoptosis, which is cell death in in um, cancer cells. You know, it has lots of different of those pathways that it impacts on. And you probably heard that, you know, even aspirin as a drug, if it went through, if it was put up for, um, you know review by therapeutic goods um, authority or, or, you know, in America, the FDA, it wouldn't get through because it has so many different targets and so many different um, pathways that it affects. So with that, um, it's hard to do the research because it's hard to, you know, get the funding to do that. So, yeah, we just have to keep keep getting, you know, building that evidence base um, and at some stage, you know, hopefully there is enough of uh, an impetus, enough of, a, uh, of that evidence uh, to then go into a clinical trial and clinical trials are the way that different approaches actually get into mainstream and be used as treatments or as prevention agents, which is you know, the, obviously the ultimate goal for cancer is preventing cancer from occurring. So it's, it's those kind of experiments that need to be done and they're very costly, they're very expensive. So without funding behind, it's very difficult to actually get the evidence that's required. Yeah, so I guess for us, we we also want to find, you know, approaches that can not cause harm. So, you know, it's not going to be for, for most people, including a capsaicin supplement, you know, is not going to cause, if that's not going to, if we have enough evidence to show it's not going to cause harm, but may be helpful, not a big deal. You know, something that is low cost, uh, you know, that can be, to develop enough evidence to show that it's not going to be harmful, but it may well be helpful, that could be useful. But actually using natural products as treatments in the place of other, you know, I guess, mainstream drugs, I think we're a long way off that being mainstream. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm, that's a great mm. answer. Thank you. Yeah. And it's just that evidence base because that's what, and, you know, that's my scientist brain coming in. Mind you, when I went through cancer myself, and again, I, I did research everything. You know, I, I think my, 
my poor oncologist used to hide under the desk when he saw me coming with all my <laughs> printed out PDFs and, you know, all my challenges. Well, I've read that zinc can do, you know. Um, but, you know, there, there is still evidence. Um, you know, there's, there is a lot of evidence out there. It's just not that, you know, the, the top evidence is, is those, you know, particularly randomized blinded clinical trial where somebody doesn't know what they're getting and showing that that actually improves um, outcomes. But, you know, you can still, there is still evidence out there that, that um, things can, you know, different approaches can be helpful. Yes, it's a difficult one. Um, um, I know friends that have, yeah, used natural remedies, I guess, or natural products to, mm-hmm. to assist probably more in the side effects of the, of the cancer yes. treatment, which yes. have been fantastic and has helped them get through. I mean, one friend said that, yeah, without um, another person who was, I think, a naturopath, but but gave her yeah. some suggestions yeah. that she wouldn't have yeah. Yeah, endured it. It was just so horrible. No. So it's it's interesting, That's isn't it? Exactly it's that right. tossing up yeah. between the medical and the you know absolutely sound scientific evidence behind something before it's actually put out to the public. I know, um, and, yeah. and the natural products that can sort of help alleviate some symptoms as well. So it's it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. but you know. It is, and and again, there's so much anecdotal out there, yes. and anecdotal. That's still that it is evidence, but you know, for a scientist and for a clinician, it's a gold standard. Is that you know having that evidence that's a, a clinical trial, randomised, blinded clinical trial, and showing that something definitively works. But it's very hard to do that. It's very hard. You know, you would have to put people in a room and only give them certain things to eat and not, and then follow their, you know, their their progress. Do you know they have to be longitudinal studies? Do they develop cancer? Do they not? Do they? So you know, it's there are so many ethical um, considerations, and just you know, some research is just impossible to do. So we just we have to find other forms of evidence. But yes, I agree. There are there are so many approaches and so many people of um, you know the side effects of cancer treatment as well as as cancer are you know they're debilitating and they're you know um, we have to have ways of dealing with that. Uh, and often contemporary medicine doesn't have the answers. And garlic is one that I relied on for. I know thrush is oral thrush for when you're on chemotherapy because obviously. Well, you're not obviously, but anyway, your whole immune system is is um, is diminished and um, compromised. And oral thrush, which is the candida albicans that lives, you know, usually at low levels within our um, within our mouths. You know, for many chemotherapy agents, they you know that one of the side effects that's really unpleasant is is that. And um, for me, I found garlic and because it was so unpleasant even just I ended up I put crush up garlic and stick it on toast and put it on my tongue um, but that was to get rid of you know and it would would work um and I always thought oh I'm going to do that I'm going to you know do a clinical trial where we can you know see if we can um you know uh, uh try and prevent or, or get rid of um, you know uh, treat uh, oral thrush in this way but again, you know, trying to get the funny, then thinking about the ethical issues of people going through chemotherapy, you know, put something else on there. But but anyway, but um, yeah, but I would love to see more of that happening. And and there are, you know, in, in little bits, particularly the US National Institute of Health, CNIH, has a complementary and uh, I think it's called complementary and alternative therapy kind of um, group. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that kind of research is being funded through groups like that so it is increasing but again not in the cancer treatment but potentially in that, that the, the treatment of side effects 
So you're talking uh, in the in the introduction. We talked about you were doing some quality of life research as well. So how do lifestyle factors contribute one to the recovery from cancer treatment, but also are there lifestyle factors that can help in the prevention of cancer initially? Mm. I guess and and what are some of these factors that you were doing the quality of life research about? So so yes, there are some uh, there are, there is evidence, and it's pretty much just looking at the statistics of you know, people who do end up, you know, who are diagnosed with cancer, those who aren't, there are, um, uh, you know, those kind of lifestyle factors around diet, um, around um, exercise, as well as, you know, emotional and, and mental health um, all have links. But again, you know, that's not to say that somebody who is completely healthy in mind and body won't develop cancer because that can still happen as well because <laughs> those things that those um, genetic those mutations that occur sometimes we just don't know why why they occur so so yes there are um, lifestyle factors that can increase one's risk of of cancer but you know again it's not not a black and white thing so so I guess trying to understand more about that is is what we um, what I do have a, a strong interest in so what are some of the factors that you know, and it's going to potentially be a combination of genetic and lifestyle that increases somebody's risk of developing a cancer. But what does that look like? Um, and that'll be a tricky thing to, to piece out. What the research that we um, did a couple of years ago, and so this was in uh, collaboration with Blush Cancer Care, who, who funded it along with St Andrews um, Hospital. Um, and so it was to look at women following their primary treatment for breast cancer. So that's around um, so the radiation, they'd finished their chemotherapy and, and radiation therapy if they had it and had had surgery, but they may well still have been on hormonal therapies and which can bring their own side effects as well. So the idea was, you know, could we look at the effect of a particular psychosocial intervention called acceptance and commitment therapy? Could a um, six-week course of, uh, of acceptance and commitment therapy, the acronym is ACT, um, could this improve um, quality of life outcomes, fear of recurrence, um, and also from my perspective, I was interested in recovery from chemotherapy and radiation. So I was looking at what's going on with the DNA, what's going on? Uh, are we seeing ourselves recover quickly if one's psychosocial health is at a better better place? And so we, again, this was set up as a clinical trial because, you know, I'm really keen to get this kind of, you know, scientific evidence. Um, so it was, um, we had three arms. So that's three groups in the clinical trial. Um, one group were the ACT group. Um, the other group were waitlisted, so they didn't have anything, which is always unfortunate because, People who are waitlisted get really cross <laughs> because they still have to have the test. They still have the testing, so that's you know having um, you know a little bit of uh, blood taken. I also um, very keen to use uh, non-invasive fluids, bodily fluids, um, for biomarker research rather than taking blood. Um, I know from cancer patients, you know they feel like pin cushions. So we also looked at saliva as a replacement for for blood for looking at um, some of these um, biomarkers of, of wellness and then the third group were a group that we controlled for just having that socialization so coming together we ran the sessions at St Andrews Hospital because um, the ladies had been used to coming to the hospital so that was basically to control for or to make sure that it, it wasn't just the fact that everyone was being social that improved their quality of life, fear of recurrence and all the other measures that we looked at. So we had psychologists who were doing that and, and a colleague, Dr. Nancy Hoare, ran 
things from the psychology side of things um, and we had two fabulous students, um, May and Kat Gardner, um, on the project. And so those three groups and then after the first six weeks, then we swapped around. So the wait list got the ACT treatment, um, the ACT um, went to education and education went to doing the, the ACT, the acceptance commitment therapy. And so what we found overall that we had, we had a lot of group differences and strangely enough, the waitlist group, the group that were waitlisted and then had the act, they actually performed, they had the best or the, the most change in their markers, if you will. So they're both their biological biomarkers that they're not in control of. So they're things like their recovery, their cells recovery from their treatment as well as their, their markers of quality of life and their um, reduction in that fear of recurrence or that the fear of the cancer coming back. So, yeah, so anyway, that um, was another project that, um, you know, again, we, we do this research on the smell and oily rag um, and have lots and lots of people who, you know, help us. And um, Gay Foot was amazing. She's one of the breast care nurses at St Andrews there. And, of course, Sharon Donaldson, who um, is the president of, of Blush, who, um, who funded it. With that um, project, we um, have carried on looking at um, other factors that can influence that recovery from cancer and so Blush Fund uh, exercise um, program that's based on uh, guidelines that were established by the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia and the Exercise Science Society of Australia. And so that is funded by Blush Cancer Care and Queensland X-Ray and uh, undertaken at, at FitLab in Toowoomba. So those ladies have a 12-week program um, where they are basically following various exercises, cardiovascular as well as weight-bearing in order to improve, you know, their, I guess, long-term outlook for dealing with their cancer as well as improving the side effects from the cancer, which we, we see that that occurs. So that's the, the psychosocial and, and a bit of the other stuff that we're doing. But again, I'd love to do so much more, but there's only so many hours in a day and um, days in a week. But, um, but yeah, all exciting stuff. It is, yeah. It's been really interesting listening to it all and it really sounds like you've totally dedicated yourself to empowering people who receive this diagnosis or who might receive, you know, in the prevention of such a thing. I hope so, even if it's just a little bit, (laughs) just a little bit, yeah. Uh, It's it's very exciting to to hear a lot of the research that you're doing and I'm sure there's so much more that we could chat about but we know your time is very valuable so we really appreciate you coming onto the Gutsy Matters podcast and talking about a little bit about projects that you've you've got going and, and that you've been working on as well so thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and your knowledge it's really exciting and I'm, I'm really thrilled to hear some of the projects that also getting out into the community and encouraging younger people to get into science because we will need researchers for a long time. As you say, it's it's not a short-term fix, so it's it's wonderful. No, thank you so much, No, it's, um, and thank you for those very kind words. And Yes, and thank you for uh, producing such a wonderful podcast as well that's helpful to, I'm sure, so many people. Thanks, Eliza. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed this conversation and know people who'd be interested in knowing more about this topic, then show them you care and send them the link to this podcast. To keep up with our Gutsy Matters conversations, subscribe and share with your friends. For extras, follow Stored Naturally on Facebook and Instagram. 
Gutsy Matters podcast is brought to you by Stored Naturally. We are the creators of the all-natural hemp fresh produce enhancer, for longer-lasting and healthier fresh food kept in the fridge. Available at storednaturally.com.